Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Welcome back, and listen, my good friends, as I tell you the tale of what is still, and to this day, known as the most well-documented paranormal experience in history, and it all happened in the rolling foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. In 1804, a man named John Bell and his family settled on 300 acres of land, now known as Adams, Tennessee. The legend of the haunting that has the basis for television productions and the Hollywood film The American Haunting all started up about 1817 right on John Bell's farm with John Bell himself. While out tending his farm, Mr. Bell saw an animal that he couldn't identify. It looked like it was a big black dog with a head of a rabbit. He fired a shot at it and it promptly disappeared. John's son, Drew run upon an unknown bird perched on the fence that flew off and was, as he said, of extraordinary size. The daughter Betsy saw a girl in the green dress swinging from a limb in an oak tree. Dean, a person enslaved by the Bell family, reported being followed by a large black dog every evening when he headed home. Right when Dean got to his front door, the dog disappeared. That kicked off a series of events that, well, let's just say that calling them odd would be far short from the torment that the Bell family endured. Mr. Bell, his wife Lucy, and his children began to hear pounding noises on the outside of their cabin, along with loud gnawing sounds, which seemed to be coming from inside the cabin walls. Every time there was 
pounding on the outside, they would run out and try to catch what they thought at first were jokesters trying to play a trick on them. And every time they'd run out, they found nothing at all there. So far, the one could say that Mr. Bell simply misidentified whatever creature that it was he was chasing around the farm, squeezing off shots at, and that just maybe a raccoon or even a field mouse had actually made its way into the walls of the cabin where it was gnawing at the wood, and even that there were some like a, maybe some skilled pranksters whacking on the cabin wall in an attempt to drive the bells crazy, and that would have been that. But except this thing, whatever it was, was just getting started. Heck, it was nowhere near done. Soon the gnawing escalated to the, it sounded as though it was, the thing was actually gnawing on the bedpost of the beds. But whatever it was didn't leave a single mark anywhere to be found on the bedposts. Then they all started hearing faint voices that they couldn't identify or pinned down a location on it. it. Sounded like an elderly lady singing hymns in the distance. Then that even got worse as the entity started physically throwing pillows across the room, tugging on the children's bed sheets, and even slapped, pushed, and generally assaulted Betsy Bell, John's daughter. Not just once, but it got to be an overnight thing. What with this being the time and place it was and the buckle of the Bible belt, the family who attended the Red River Baptist Church decided to keep the whole thing to themselves, at least for the time being. That was until John Bell finally, and I suppose to keep from going completely off the deep end, had to tell somebody, so he shared the whole thing with his friend James Johnston, who came over to see for himself just what was going on. After retiring for the evening at the Bell home, he too was awakened by the same things. The two of them decided to go see the preacher for help, and that didn't do a lot of good as the preacher referred to it as a spirit. All three men decided to keep whatever it was a secret between them. But just weeks later, Mr. Bell found that somebody let the cat out of the bag because people from Middle Tennessee and Southern Kentucky started showing up on the Bell farm to see the house and family for themselves. Apparently, that was something that the entity didn't appreciate too much because it made the whole haunting worse. The more people who tried to talk to this thing, the louder and worse it got, almost like it was feeding off people's fear. So again, the thing stepped it up a notch and started beating the children and tripping and or shoving the adults around with greater intensity. Its voice had changed from a nearly indetectable mumble to a more clear, sometimes low and melodic, and at others a shrill, shrill screeching. It finally announced its intention one evening to kill John Bell, who she called Old Jack. As the witch said, he was a bad man. The entity screeched it and said, I'm going to kill him. By now, it was showing up in churches and singing along with the hymns in what was said to be an unsettling tone. It would also make up its own words to the tune of the hymns, taunting the preacher of not one but two churches at the same time. It interrupted the preachers during their sermons and teased them about 
already hearing about what they're going to say. Oh, this right in front of both entire church congregations. One of the preachers asked it how it knew what he was going to say, and it answered by telling him that he was foolish to ask because he was right there beside him when he wrote it all down. The witch was also, well, steeped in knowledge of the Bible and enjoyed a good argument on the subject every time you could get one. Who was this thing? Well, it gave many answers about who it was and why it was haunting the Bell family. In one case, it claimed to be the spirit of a Native American whose grave had been disrupted by one of the Bell boys. Uh, sure enough, after hearing that, they all remembered that John Jr. had found a human skull laying on the ground in the farm and brought it to his dad. Mr. Bell scolded the boy and told him to return it to where he got it from, which the boy did. Another time, it claimed it was doing the Bell family's one of their, their neighbors, Kate Batts, for some reason, this story stuck, and the Bell Witch is often referred to as Kate. Who was she? Well, Kate Batts was an outcast in the Red River community. Having little money and doing the majority of the hard physical labor on her family's farm because her husband, who was paralyzed from an accident, couldn't. She had a habit of trying to impress people, making a scene, and trying to be the center of attention. I guess that's why her name stuck. Ms. Batts denied any connection to the haunting, but the entity began responding to the name Kate. The name Bell Witch is said to have been coined by General Andrew Jackson, who would go on to be President of the United States. This after he came to the Bell home for an exploratory visit. Some of the Bell children had fought with General Jackson, and the general owned the land not far from the Bell's farm. When General Jackson, who brought with him a witch tamer armed with silver bullets, and his men arrived at the Bell farm, the horses refused to cross the property line until a voice came out of nowhere and told General, who after about an hour of doing everything from whipping the horses to trying to drag them onward, said that they could now pass, which they did. The witch was mostly quiet during the general's visit. That was until the witch tamer threatened the witch by telling her that he wasn't afraid of her because he had a witch tamer, referring to his silver bullet. That's when a voice came out of nowhere again and said, Now it's my turn, general. That's when an invisible force yanked the witch tamer up by his shirt collar and began beating him senseless. Much to the amusement of the general and his men, According to the witnesses, the witch tamer screamed like a little girl and crawled off bloodied and crying, got on his horse, rode about 50 feet, and was knocked from his saddle as the thing laughed out loud at him. Now, there's no official record of General Jackson's run-in with the witch, but one has to remember, General Jackson had political aspirations, and, well, if people thought you was crazy, then he might not be able to achieve them. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, John Johnston, you remember that friend of John's that stayed overnight and saw everything for himself? Well, he took it upon himself to devise a test for the witch. 
something no one outside of his family would know, asking the entity what his Dutch step-grandmother would, in North Carolina would say if, to the slaves if she thought that they did something wrong. The witch replied with his grandmother's accent, Hut tut, what has happened now? In another account, an Englishman who was a harsh skeptic stopped to visit and offered to investigate. On remarking on his family overseas, the witch suddenly began to mimic his English parents. Again, at early morning, the witch woke him with voices of his parents, worried as if they had heard his voice as well. The Englishman quickly gathered up his belongings and left. He later wrote the Bell family that the entity had visited his family in England, and he apologized for his skepticism. For some unknown reason, the spirit displayed a form of kindness toward Lucy, calling her the greatest wife that ever lived, who she was a most perfect woman that ever walked the face of the earth, according to the witch. The witch, who gave Lucy fresh fruit and sang hymns to her, and showed John Bell Jr. a good deal of respect as well. The neighbors of the Bells weren't left out of it either. They, too, had gnawing on their bedposts, pillows thrown from the beds, covers, and pulled off, and the cackling from the witch could be heard everywhere they walked. After four years of going through night after night of unending torment, John Bell finally became seriously ill. That's no surprise. He, he's the elder of the family, none of which have had a night's sleep in four years. Mr. Bell, who was approaching his 70s, started struggling to eat, claiming that it was hard for him to swallow. It felt like a stick was shoved through his throat. He would seemingly be ripped from his chair and thrown in the floor by an invisible force. The invisible force would slap him so hard that it would cause him to start having seizures. As of course, the witch cackled and laughed out loud at him. The poor man had big red whelps on his face shaped like handprints from the slapping. His shoes would be ripped off of him and thrown out the front door for no reason, and by the same unseen force, of course. I expect by now the whole family were so used to seeing it do that that they just accepted it as pretty much normal. But poor John Bell finally died in 1820 at the age of 70. John's son, John Bell Jr., found poison next to his bed. The Bell witch is believed to have poisoned Mr. Bell and laughed and sang at his bedside, admitting to it. John Jr. tested the vial of poison by giving it to a cat, which promptly dropped over instantly. Then, being so frustrated at the whole thing, he threw the poison and the vial and all into the fire where it erupted into a purple flame and whisked away up the chimney. They couldn't even have a peaceful funeral for the man as the witch showed up there too. She was singing, laughing, and taunting people as well as talking about what a no-good cuss old Jack was, even following the whole procession to the graveside for more torment. The haunting finally died down a bit after John Bell's death. That was until she turned her attention to Betsy, who was newly engaged to a man named Joshua Gardner. For some reason, the witch didn't like Joshua and would continually scare and threaten Betsy not to marry him. The witch finally convinced Betsy to break off their engagement to Joshua, who later moved to Tennessee. He became a 
County Sheriff and Justice of the Peace in the Henry County area and ended up in a weekly county where he and his brother started a railroad. He finally died a very wealthy man at the age of 84. Betsy would go on to court, date, and marry her own school teacher named Richard Powell, who the witch apparently approved of, and who had taken quite a shine to Betsy ever since she started school as a little girl. Hmm. The Bell Witch disappeared for a time before coming back to say that she would return in seven years. When she returned to John Bell Jr. in 1828, she spoke to him for three nights about the past, present, and future. John Jr. said that she predicted the American Civil War. She then began to carry out the same activities as before, but they chose to try to ignore it, didn't encourage it, and the witch appeared to leave again. But that ain't all. On April 24, 1880, back in Springfield, Tennessee, near the Bell Farm, knocking underneath the floor was heard. The fourth night of knockings began at 10.30 and ended at 4 a.m. with the home surrounded by 10 or 12 persons working in an effort to discover the origin of the sound. On April 26, 1880, several hundred people had visited the home attempting to witness the phenomenon with many camped out overnight despite the homeowners asking them to leave. On Wednesday night, April 28, 1888, or 1880, the family left the home for the night, and a smaller group of investigators around the home heard the knocking from 50 yards away. During the events, the journalist wrote the following. It is an actual fact that several hundred intelligent people of Springfield in the vicinity have been so excited over the noise as to go night after night to listen to it. About 30 years ago, Robertson County had a sensational similar to this known as the Bell Witch. And people came from all parts of the country, even as far as New York, to hear and see her too. The Springfield floor knocking occurred at the residence of John W. Knuckles, a prominent physician. Dr. Knuckles was recently married to Laura Hopkins Jones, a union opposed by her family. The witch, or whatever it was this time, created a domestic disturbance between the couple. The couple separated by, in May of 1880, and that August, John Knuckles nabbed his infant child from his wife, running through town with his wife chasing after him, screaming. After the baby was found and returned to Laura Knuckles, who was living with her father, Asa Hopkins, Dr. Knuckles in February 1882 confronted Laura's father over his desire to see his child and threatened his father-in-law's life. During the argument, Dr. Knuckles attempted to shoot Mr. Hopkins, but was restrained by bystanders. The next day, as a result of the confrontation, Dr. Knuckles' brother-in-law, S.B. Hopkins, traveled from Nashville, found and shot Dr. Knuckles with a double-barrel shotgun, killing him. The circumstances of the shooting were contested, and S.B. Hopkins was acquitted of murder. That's still not all. February 3, 1890, a series of events took place in Adams Station, Tennessee, near the Bell Farm. A Mr. Rowland attempted to place a sack of corn on his horse's back, and it fell off. He again attempted to place a sack of corn on the horse's back several more times, but each time the sack fell off. Now, thinking that it must be so off-balance that he needed help, he called on a Mr. Joe Johnson, to, who held the horse and the sack as Mr. Rowland mounted the horse. They 
then witnessed the sack floating away for 20 yards where it settled down in the fence row. When the man went to grab the sack, a voice was heard to say, You won't touch this sack again. <laughs> then in February 18, 1890, Mr. Johnson was visiting Buck Smith and were discussing the recent visitation of what he thought to be a witch at his home. They heard knocking on the door, and when they opened the door, the knocking began at another door. They sat down, and the dog began to fight with something invisible. Two minutes later, the door flew open, and fire spread across the room, blown by a cyclonic wind with the coals disappearing as they tried to put it out. That evening, Mr. Johnson started home on his horse, and something jumped on his back and grabbed his shoulders as he tried to restrain the horse. He felt it jump off as he neared his home and run into the woods. Then as Mr. Rowland, while finishing up the burning the vegetation in his field, described a visit at 9 p.m. of a half-clothed man with one eye in the center of his forehead that directed him to follow him to dig near a large rock. The figure then disappeared. Mr. Rowland dug that night until he could dig no more. He received help the next morning from Bill Burgess and Mr. Johnson and discovered something described as a tea kettle turned upside down. They were unable to move it as the soil began going back into the hole faster than the three men could dig it out. Lucy Bell Butler is a direct descendant of John Ju Bell Jr., named after John Bell's wife Lucy, of course. Mrs. Butler said that the stories of the witch were part of her childhood upbringing. It was pretty interesting because things didn't happen and we or did happen and we would just naturally turn and say oh it's the bell witch lucy said lucy said she believes that the witch is not confined within the limits of the bell family's farm in adams but follows her family wherever they go she said that she and her daughter jennifer have seen the big black dog and when jennifer was growing up they often saw a giggling girl running around their house at night I was thinking that it might have been the Bell Witch. That would have been the sweet side of her, I guess, Lucy said. The little girl would play with Jennifer's toys, and the family dog was not afraid of her. She stayed. She would come out at night, and she was a sweet and giggly little girl. Not everyone in Lucy's family wanted to talk about the witch, though. She said her grandfather, a Methodist preacher, refused to allow one word about cake to be spoken in his presence. Lucy said she thinks this could be because of a negative experience he might have had with the witch. I can go through the bad people in my family and see things that have happened and why, and then I see the good things, Lucy said, because the bell witch, she did give a, have a good side to the people she liked. Lucy said the entity did not like her father, a smooth-talking, good-looking actor in Memphis who happened to have a alleged involvement with the Florida Mafia. She recalls one incident that happened when the child, or she was a child just before her father was about to host a gathering at her home. Her father said had purchased a new stereo system, a considerable purchase in the 1960s. Lucy said that she walked downstairs to find her living room filled with thousands of crickets moving into the music room where they climbed directly into the stereo system and ruined it. I think she punished the people that needed to be punished, Lucy said, but I think she also took care of the ones she liked. Lucy's husband, Larry Butler, was 
skeptical of the story at first. In fact, he even drove out to the Bell Farm with the Bible in hand to confront the witch in the cave on the property. The cave was closed. I'm glad it was, Larry said. He recalls one strange incident he witnessed while he was alone in Lucy's apartment. He said the jewelry Lucy had hanging up in her bedroom started shaking. So he investigated to see if the air vent could be causing the movement. He found nothing, and he went back to the living room. A tassel hanging from the lamp started spinning around in circles, like somebody was using their finger to kick it around. I thought that's it. He recalled, Saturday morning, daylight, I left. Lucy had the whole month's rent paid, but I moved us out of there. It freaked me out. Neither Larry nor Lucy has experienced anything since. They said Lucy considers herself to be a devout believer in God and prays every morning, but she said that doesn't mean she can't also believe that the bell witch still exists. There's probably a lot of people that don't believe in her, and that's fine, Lucy said. Everybody's got their personal opinion. I just believe it. I saw a lot of things. Things happened, and I was there, she said. Hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Please go over to our Patreon page and at patreon.com, search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to choose from, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. Or you can go to the Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend Podcast, where we can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. No limits. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.